Write that, write that down for me, Satan. Write that down for me, Satan. One of your hosts, Justin Lipper, I edit for FightGameMedia.com. I'm a staff writer over at F4WOnline.com and WrestlingObserver.com. I'm back with Japan's leading pro wrestling author and historian and broadcast journalist and sociologist, Mr. Fumi Saito. All right, today's episode, I really enjoyed doing this episode, so I hope you guys enjoyed too. Um, History of AWA Part 2. Uh, we talked about from the you know the late seventies on to the end of the promotion in nineteen ninety. We talked about Fumi's memories uh, living in Minnesota and working ringside at AWA, meeting Vern Gagne, Wally Carbo. Uh, we talked about we talked quite a bit about Hulk Hogan, Mean Gene, Nick Bockwinkle, Ray Stevens, and Nick Bockwinkle as a team talked about Andre the Giant, um, the working relationships AWA had between uh, IWE in Japan and later All Japan and Giant Baba. Uh, we later talked about when WWF started running in Minnesota and how things started to change in the mid to late 80s when the exodus of AWA talent occurred in the mid, early to mid 80s. Um, we talked about other talents. We talked about Asa Saito. We talked about the Road Warriors. We talked about Jumbo Saruta, AWA World Heavyweight Champion at one point. Masa Saito as well. We talked about Rick Martel, another AWA World Heavyweight Champion. Lots to get into. Enjoy the episode. Thanks for all the feedback recently. We'll get back to you next week. All right, if you haven't subscribed to the Fight Game Media Network, free feed already please do so now if you're listening on spotify you're listening on apple downcast stitcher wherever you download your shows please hit the subscribe button in the app on the app wherever it is it does help the show out a ton it helps fight game media network out a ton too awa championship wrestling The AWA presents the greatest stars. I started as a ringside photographer back in spring of 1981. Oh my gosh. Now it's 41 years ago. <laughs> what was it like when you first oh. got there? You were oh, like uh, my, my, my being 19 year old puppy. <laughs> 19 years old. Yeah. Uh, you were in college. Yeah, I was in college. Brought my camera to St. Paul Civic Center. No, it was a Minneapolis auditorium. Yeah. And uh, introduced myself to Wally Carbo and Vern Gagne. <laughs> oh God! What were they like? What What, what were these guys like um, back then? And how did they treat you? And how would they approach you? Oh, what were that, your first as, impressions? As far as, as far as business goes, a complete kayfabe era, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I introduced myself as as somebody, uh, the reporter, you know, from Japanese magazine, and. Uh, I guess they're skeptical a little bit, but uh, I look Japanese enough, and uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that kind of thing was happening regularly, if at all. Um, even not not just back then, but uh, it's it's not uh, something that happens every day. We get a you know 
exchange reporter. Yeah. In the States. Yeah. So what were some of your early experience, early experience, but I wanted to know about your, your first, uh, really lasting memories or impressions from your first couple of years there. What, what do you remember oh, wow. immediately? So, so what comes much to mind? that the very first event that I got to go in, you know, ringside inside the barricade, basically, uh, and photograph uh, AWA World Heavyweight Championship match, Vern Gagne against Nick Bockwinkle, right? Mm-hmm. So it got so close, you know, they arrested these two superstars wrestling, what, three feet away from me, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got overwhelmed i guess and uh i try to take pictures but i never watched wrestling match so close so Mm -hmm. yeah and also yeah go ahead i was gonna ask when you were watching uh especially a high level championship match like that back then what were your impressions and how did you compare it with the japanese wrestling you were used to at the time but i never really watched japanese wrestling that close either you know Mm -hmm. not even the ringside when you're a little kid you buy yourself nosebleed tickets. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, my first experience from like a two feet, three feet away thing was the AWA. And these are the people I watched it on TV and read on magazine, you know, so I tried to keep my cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in adult world, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. So I just tried, tried my best to look and act, you know, mature. <laughs> and it was also a time, I guess today in pro wrestling, you have people that are working in the industry that are 18, 19, 20 years old. <laughs> Back then, uh, a lot of the personnel at AWA, they were from, they were the older generation, uh, a lot of the top. Personnel. And AWA was like a senior league. You have Vern right. Gagne, right? And the Crusher, Salsky, the Mad Dog Vashan. The, yeah, those seniors are in there. It's like 50s. a master's league. Ah, yes. And, but you can still see, you know, uh, young, you know, right out of high school, you know, not a high school, but uh, trained to be wrestler. Later on, Mr. Perfect Carton Hayden, he was backstage. And before he debuted as wrestler, they used him as referee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Father worked there people, too, Larry the Axe. Yeah, he was taking time off after he made comeback after Kurt Hennig debuted. So they had Larry, Larry the Axe Hennig and son Kurt Hennig tag team combination. And the way Adrian Adonis was selling for Larry the Axe Hennig, it's like I learned so much, you know. It's oh, yeah? like a bit, yeah, it's like a barely making physical body contact, but Adrian flying all over the place. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And Adrian Adonis, <laughs> speaking of Adrian Adonis, this was, um, I guess if you're only familiar with his WWE work, WWF or whatever, uh, he was a different character. Very different. Right. Kind of the, the black leather jacket, New York logo in his back. And uh, yeah. Yeah. He was like a Hell's Angel kind of uh, wrestler. And Jesse Ventura, well, now he, people only know him as a, what the conspiracy theory guy or, or Minnesota governor, you know, or a little bit an actor. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, locally in Minnesota, talk radio person, you know, morning radio, you know, mm-hmm. personality. Yeah. That the morning morning driving time radio that the, you listen to Jesse Venter for an hour, you know, going to work. But the early '80s Jesse Venter and and Adrian Adonis, they were the younger guys hmm. in the dressing room. Yeah, and the program was tag AW Tag Team Champion 
the, the Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashan together as tag team champion. And the, the biggest challenger was then young Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis. They met in, in AWA territory. The, 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 right around the time I you know came to Minnesota as an exchange student, that, that was the time Adrian Adonis came from uh, Amarillo, Texas, you know, came up and uh, he was working first match. Then, you know, started you know going up to mid card and to main event. And you had the young baby face of Steve Olsonowski, baby face, you know, young version of Paul Elling. See, mm-hmm. Even 80s fans, you know, think Paul Elling as a as Road Warriors manager. He was active wrestler then. Yeah. And uh, quite a few, quite a few. Yeah. I think a couple of years later, didn't we see Scott Hall, young Scott Hall? Oh, no, not till 85. Yeah. Okay. So it's a couple years later. Yeah, because uh, you have to. T- we have to talk about 1982, 1983. Hulk Hogan babyface run. Ah, mm-hmm. it was like a rehearsal of WWE run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because in, initially in 79 and 80, when Hulk Hogan became Hulk Hogan from from uh, Terry Balder or Stalin Golden or different gimmick that uh, Vince McMahon Senior gave Terry Balder Hulk Hogan name and had heel run. Then when and he was sent to New Japan Pro Wrestling, and he, you know, he pretty much signed a signed contract with New Japan and became New Japan American Star. And in 1982 and 83, Hogan was splitting time, you know, half year in Japan, half year in AWA. And he had he already bought a smaller house, the townhouse, but he had house in Minnesota, and uh, he liked it. You know, he liked it there, so he bought a house and he was living with his, his you know later on his fian- then fiance linda uh got married later on they got divorced in the same mom you know mm-hmm. uh, you know nick nick hogan's mom you know that uh she was already there anyhow that uh, when we started yeah when i started yeah uh adrian adonis and jesse ventura young heel like working horse heel that, uh, can you imagine working with people like Ganya and the Mad Dog version? You are doing 95% of work in that thing. <laughs> yeah. 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 But uh, not to take uh, that, uh, anything away from this, that Vern Ganya actually was, you know, well, I, I had to grow my eyes I mean, to watch good wrestling and good work and who's a good wrestler. And, you know, I had, you know, I was able to witness that from, like I said, you know, two, three feet away. And uh, Vern Gagne's timing was always really good. And he was throwing drop kicks when he was about 50, you know, 53, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I learned something that uh, you don't have to have dangerous move or big bump to have a good match. Mm. Vern Gagne didn't. You know, you do the pretty good looking arm, arm drags, right? Sure. Good, real good looking hip toss, which is pretty smooth move but when you do it it, 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 it really actually work in front of 20,000 people you know what I'm saying yeah 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 if it's well and done it, well executed you really notice right and arm drag look like a big move right sure look at Ricky Steamboat yeah. half his career oh, oh that, that the... is exceptional but sure. uh, you, you, the Vungania uh Arm drag is not as spectacular as Ricky Steamboat <laughs> arm drag little, but the, it, nonetheless, it's like you're barely touching each other. You know what I'm saying? Mm. 
they're just execution and timing and how to hold on, you know, the certain place of the body that they had to do certain moves that they were really good. And just Adrian Adonis walked right into Vern Gagne's, you know, back body drop. You know what I'm saying? And someone like Adrian Adonis, who is a, a heavier set wrestler, a bigger guy, would move like he's, you know, 50 pounds. Fly yeah, around the Yeah, he was really good. And also, you wouldn't call Jesse Ventura a good worker because he's not really technical, you know. And uh, but the, when you when you do certain things certain way, like a bear hug means so much or something, you know. You do the pose, you know. And also, AWA audience was so educated to young, you know, younger superstar Billy Graham in his days in in mid, you know, early to mid seventies. So they were ready for Jesse Ventura then. I mean, just just second coming, right? Mm. Yeah, good looking. I mean, same tie dye or real psychedelic color pattern, long, you know, spandex, long tights, and uh, routines are the same. Posing, lot of staling, posing, and uh, it takes five minutes until you make first contact, lock up in the middle of the ring. But it's psychology you learn, really, and. Uh, yeah, I guess I think I really studied it, you know, these things by watching these people real close. Yeah. I think when you when you talk about Jesse Ventura, we also should mention how important Mean Gene Okerlund was to AWA at around this time because someone like oh. Jesse Ventura, when he did his, you know, interviews interviews, promos, yeah. That's where you really got to know a character like Jesse Ventura or someone like a Mad Dog Vachon. So when you have someone like Gene Okerlund who can kind of pull it out of them easily. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And Gene Okerlund's voice, this, you know, he was, you know, the actually he wasn't even part of AWA first. He had his own local advertising company and he, that the wrestling gig was Mean Gene's, you know, part-time job, but they became so important and he became famous. And uh, yeah, his he had this radio voice, right? This is announcer voice. Great voice. And, uh, oh yeah, great voice, and also perfect for wrestler wrestling interviewer because he's you know a lot smaller and shorter with a little teeny mustache on him, and he's like supposedly you're afraid of wrestlers, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. And he doesn't look at all like a wrestler. He looks like a, you know at the time the sports broadcaster. So oh yeah, yes, yes. like a, yeah, like a dorky baseball broadcast or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it, everything worked perfect. Where's this goofy? If you think about it now, that the red, red mm -hmm. sports jacket. Yeah, you know that's sportscaster, right? Yeah, yeah, and then uh, yeah, red sport jacket with AWA logo on his left chest. Yeah, and uh, it, it had this major league look, and uh, and. Uh, Interview space with AWA Logan in the background, yes. And uh, after you grow up, you would guess that everybody is in that studio, babyface or heel, <laughs> you know. But on TV, it, it, they were able to make it look like you know they were the only one in in the room interviewing, you know. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, another person that the AWA <clears throat> and WWE and Vince McMahon pretty much took right away was Bobby the Brain Heenan. Oh, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, what the heel manager should be? Yeah, the yeah the uh, <clears throat> the definition, the proto, not not even the prototype, just 
the the archetype. That's what I. Oh yeah, and also he was a wrestler, and he could actually have regular matches. And he was in Bobby Heenan was part of six man tag team, uh, like a Nick Bachwinkle and, and Big Bad Bobby Duncan, and third member of the tag team. The third member was like Bobby Heenan a lot of times. Of course, he'll take a take a fall. But the, the while I was taking photos, you know, uh, as a ring down by the ringside, that uh, it's almost like yesterday's term. But Bobby Heenan was the one who was juicing, you know. Really, is that right? Oh, cut his forehead. I mean, just so much blood, you know. And because you know, because if you are coming from outside, you know, and then and then the people will tell you that the blood's so fake, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. You know, the blood's so re- real. You know. It got on my shirt, you know, and changed color. It's real. I mean, it smelled like blood in, you know, when you were down by the ringside. Hmm. You know, oh yeah. You know, like somebody bleeds, it smells like almost like iron smell. Sure. Yeah. 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 It's like a. Wow. Back then, in early '80s, there were still people wrestlers were juicing. I mean, you cannot have cage match without blood. I mean, I mean, it's not today's wrestling. You know what I'm saying? Right. And it wasn't. It was even before HIV thing. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or hepatitis, yeah. or yeah, all those things. Yeah. So freely, that not really, but uh, it has to mean something when you post the fight outside the ring and somebody post, you know, ring post, boom. Mm-hmm. You know, you would think you have lump or something in your head, but. Uh, that the, somebody posting somebody into the steel post, boom, that meant automatic juice. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Somebody hit you, you know, over the head with chair, that's like juice. I mean, blood. And uh, yeah, I witnessed all those things right in front of me. And not just exciting, but they go, oh, this is how they do. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Oh, I educate you real fast. Yeah. The back to, yes, this, uh, that, uh, Nine, early 1980s AWA format, yeah. Uh, actually, it was a format that works for any wrestling company. You have one world heavyweight champion, right? Mm-hmm. Usually Bachwinkle. And world tag team championship. You, you know, either Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis, or uh, Greg Gagne and Jim Brunzel, High Flyers, or sometimes... Um, Jerry Blackwell and Ken Patera or somebody like that, and you know what did, I'm saying? Uh, oh, later. did uh, Ray Stevens early in the '70s? Ray Stevens and um... Ray Stevens and Nick Bockwinkel were the pretty much longest reigning tag team champion hmm. before Bockwinkel became singles world you know heavyweight champion. Right, and they needed this Bockwinkel because all through you know 1960 to 1975 for about 15, in the 15 year period. It was all Vern Gagne, hmm. you know, singles world champion. Sometimes, you know, heel crusher will have a title, but go right back to Vern Gagne. Sometimes people like Mr. M, like you know, Bill Miller, will get the title, but uh, go right back to Vern Gagne. Sometimes, you know, Dr. X, Dick Byer, right, hmm. uh, get the title, but goes back to uh, Vern Gagne. Mad Dog Vashand. Pretty much all the, the routine that uh, a lot of times heel, strong heel will get the title for a while, but eventually the world heavyweight title will go back to Vernganya. But that ultimately killed the territory. Does that make sense? Was it because it was just so repetitive after, gosh, 
and also two, three decades. you're an athlete and and the people age in 15 20 year period and Vern Gagne also aged you know still work in the ring but uh you know wrestling fans grow you know same amount of time too and uh you need a new main event star and uh i when i was a kid you know i thought that the Billy Robinson was going to be the next world AWA world champion for sure, for sure thing. I read all the wrestling magazine as a kid, and Billy Robinson pretty much regular in Japan all through you know late sixties into seventies. IWA, IWE, International Wrestling you know, Enterprise, and then in the seventy five he switched in the Antonio Inoki and, and Billy Robinson's historical single match. Then Billy Robinson switched switched to Giant Baba's All Japan, and he had a long career in Japan, but the, he was the guy everybody thought that uh, was going to be the next AWA champ, world heavyweight champion after Vergania. For mm-hmm. some reason, that didn't happen. Probably, partially because two baby faces don't really work against each other in America, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Vergania and Billy Robinson did happen, though, but the, never was like a big title switch program. And it was the theme of Vern Gagne's version of movie, The Wrestler, remember? Right. Yeah. Didn't they have a match for IWE in Japan? Yeah, that too. Um, aged champion Vern Gagne against a you know, veteran challenge, challenger, Billy Robinson. Uh, but the, they were, I think Vern Gagne was already in late 40s and Billy Robinson was in the late 30s both veterans and that title match took place in japan uh three uh two out of three four match 16 minute broadway of course one and one and third ma- you know third four going to 60 minute yeah so they didn't do the title switch in japan i see that was an interesting tour they had Vern Gagne, billy robinson nick barquenko and ray stevens all in the same same tour looking back all on, on it i think that's a it's pretty uh Pretty de- good lineup. Yeah, AWA All Star. Yeah, mm. pretty much. Yeah, and uh, it was interesting because uh, back then, JWA Japan Pro Wrestling and second group was IWE International Wrestling Enterprise Yoshiwara's company. The and JWA uh, still Baba and Inoki together. You know, you know about seven year period. And uh, those are two companies. And JWA had the affiliate with NWA and New York and other Southern, Southern Territory and all. And Yoshiwara's IWE uh, signed the agreement with AWA, which was not touched up, you know, upon then. And yeah, Vern Gagne never toured JWA up until then. And, and uh, Ricky Dawson never booked, you know, Vern Gagne in his prime. And it was IWE. Uh, the International Wrestling Enterprise, the, the second company that finally brought Vern Gagne and AWA into Japan, which was interesting. Yeah. Were they the first to bring over Bill yeah. Robinson, too? Yeah, that too. And Young Under the Giant Monster Rushmoff. Mm-hmm. And this might be a kind of useless trivia, but Under the Giant uh, Monster Rushmoff's very first tour with IWA 1970, that was the same tour that the Vern Gagne was in. They met in Japan. Ah, okay. That's 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 a part of the reason that Vern Gagne sometimes claimed that he was the guy who discovered 
most you know Andre the Giant in Japan. Would Andre ever show up in AWA? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early, early. oh, actually, uh, once or twice a year, you know, after Andre the Giant signed exclusive, um, the exclusive, uh, like a contract with Vince McMahon Sr. in 1973, I believe, that uh, Vince McMahon Sr. was so smart as a promoter that he had exclu exclusive contract with Andre the Giant. In fact, Vince McMahon Sr. was the one who gave Andre the name Andre the Giant. Until then, he was in Montreal, John Fale or something, right? Mm -hmm. Giant John Fale. Yeah, and the different name in different parts of the world, Monster Rashmoff in Europe, in Japan, all this. But uh, Vince Sr., Vincent James McMahon, gave Andre the Giant Andre the Giant name and signed the contract exclusive to Vince McMahon and WWF at the time. But the promoter, Vince Sr., was so smart that he knew that the Andre should not be in one place all year. Then he wears out. He is an attraction. You know what I'm saying? You don't have under the giant in one territory all year long. What he did was under contract with Vince, Vince McMahon Senior, though. But under the giant was sent to every single territory in in, in America and Mexico and Japan. That's why Anthony Noki's New Japan had like a five tours with. Oh, uh, under the giant coming in every year, you know, like five times a year, you know, like a January tour to March tour to April tour to summer tour to end of the year tour, like a five tours. And uh, it never wears out. If he, you don't, wrestling fans don't want to get used to under the giant. Every time under the giant shows up at your, your territory's extravaganza. Mm. Yeah. And for AWA, they always had under the giant in Thanksgiving around Thanksgiving time for two weeks. Either Battle Royal or I watched champion Nick Bakwenko, the challenger under the giant, 60 minute draw. Can you imagine? I can't. I Andre, can't imagine baby, that. Yeah, baby face. Younger though, it's I'm talking about 1980 under the giant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, champion Nick Bakwenko, 60 minute, no fall. Six, worked six minutes straight. You know, in, and, uh, around this time, Andre the Giant w had some very good matches. Uh, yeah, he can. Yeah, he was able to. That, uh, it's not what we're used to when we think of WWE. Yeah, WrestleMania 3, you know, Pontiac Silverdome, Andre the Giant being body slammed by WrestleMania 3. And one, that's like, he wasn't even mobile, you know, like he was like barely walking, right? Mm. Yeah, but, totally different. He could move under the giant doing the splash off the second ropes, you know, that uh, drop kick, uh, big boot, <laughs> big boot, yeah. whatever, yeah, big boot whatever. was like a real high, yeah. Or you have your, you know, you kind of like a bear hugging Inoki and pick them up to a you know, uh, body vice, you know, the Canadian backbreaker, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Inoki lands again and suplex. Uh, like a reverse suplex under the giant and under the giant fly with it. You know, just he was able to do so. Yeah. And uh, people are giving under the giant sunset flip and he takes, you know, he rolls and uh, he was able to do a lot, a lot. Diving headbutt. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a lot of things. He was like, you could actually have very good matches under the giant in 70s and well into early 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
And uh, that to go back to this, you know, Andre touring all over the place, like Bill Watts, Louisiana, or he comes to Dallas, Texas, or come to San Francisco's Battle Royal, uh, come to Los Angeles Battle Royal, and uh, he went went to Detroit and work against Sheik. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Yeah. And go down to Florida and then work under the giant and Dusty Rhodes as a tag team, you know, tag team or something. That Andre was a traveling attraction all year long. Every time Andre comes to your territory, that's your super card. That's he, how he was used. He was a special sense? attraction. Yeah, he was. It, it's not yeah. like um, a, a competitive journey for the heavyweight title. It's not uh, Andre. Uh, he was more like uh, your. Uh, Andre the Giant is type wrestler that never needed world heavyweight title. He was Andre the Giant and uh, the, it's beyond. And uh, yeah, sometimes he'll have title match like on the Harley Race against Andre the Giant NWA world heavyweight title here and there in the Midwest or like uh, Missouri or St. Louis probably or somewhere in Texas like Houston. But uh, you don't expect title change, you know. And, but the Hardy race under the giant will have a strong single match, you know, that that was the night Hardy race or body slam under the giant, right? Mm. Yeah. And uh, Andre was yeah. slammed quite a few times before WrestleMania, wasn't he? Yeah. The big myth was that he was never, you know, body slammed by anybody that you have to keep the myth because then uh, right in front of your live crowd in, in, in San, you know, Houston or something, you feel that you witnessed like a historical moment that uh, somebody body slammed under the giant right in front of you. Mm. How do you guys did it? And it's not, well, there's like a YouTube clip that uh, whoever uh, body slammed under the giant and it's just a different time span, but like like in Mexico, connect, you know, connect body slamming, mm -hmm. how do you guys body slamming him or even people like a uh, giant Kamala, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, much later on, Ultimate Warrior, you know, in the, like, you're talking 88, you know, 1988, 80, into 1989 or something, under the giant body slammed by Ultimate Warrior. But it's been done by other people like Black Jack Mulligan or or even mass superstar like Bill Eady, my today's fan, Demolition Axe, right? Bill Eady as a masked superstar way down in South Carolina, he body slammed. Under the giant, and it's it's in tape, but not on YouTube. But uh, uh, he he told me the the story in details, and uh, you know when Andre comes in for one week that or a ten day period, that means like seven eight house shows. That's like packed, like in uh, Gainesville's house, you know, like a Georgia or somewhere, you know, or Augusta Georgia, or you know what I'm saying, like not so big city but when andre comes in and work for one week or 10 day period it's all super card yeah everyone gets they a press, chance everyone gets a chance it, to see andre yeah and also for wrestlers you know it's territorial days another another aspect of ter you know local territory and the different companies and different company body different you know set of wrestlers and, and different set of economy that's what I'm talking about. That wrestlers back then, all the way till mid '80s, were paid accordingly by your gate, what they call it. You know how many tickets sold and box office 
you know, revenue. And when Andre comes to your town and have this extravaganza that the Super Battle Royale or something, it's a super show in your local town, huh? And they raised a couple dollars, but you still had thousands and thousands more people and you had this super card. And wrestlers were paid by the house in the venue that uh, you know how many you know what the temp you know like five percent goes to him or 0.5 percent goes to him and then accordingly that you your paycheck is something real healthy that uh, the week under the giant worked your territory does that make sense if the uh, you know if the house is up everyone's paychecks go up too that's yep yep yeah that was the idea oh that's so old so old-fashioned huh yeah well, yeah. today's corporate or WWE basically monopoly world that the, every single wrestler is all the way to N NXT. Uh, you are under contract and uh, under your, you know, calculated annual salary, right? Yeah. But uh, wrestlers were making money by the house gate, you know, that, uh, yeah, gate, they call it. And uh, that, that old-fashioned thing, a uh, way of paying wrestler lasted until Vince McMahon's national expansion takeover. Yeah. But the back to, yeah, that was the Andre. So we sidetracked a little bit for AWA that the November one, one week to 10 days under the giant came in AWA territory sometimes in November, every year, every year about for about 13, 14 year period. Yeah. So sometimes he was under the giant, you know, the battle royal thing. One year was Andre and and Hulk Hogan tag team at, up against three guys like Bakwenko and Bakwenko, uh, Ken Patera and Bobby Duncan or something. Two against three because Andre and Hogan too big, right? And uh, yeah, so it's like every year they put put together a very special special you know lineup for uh, for Andre. But the calendar year AWA, they had their own, you know, own roster and package. And we were talking about early 80s uh, and, and Jesse Ventura and Adrian Adonis got their first major title, which was AWA World Tag Team title. They didn't actually beat Vern Gagne and Mad Dog Vashon. The, the Mad Dog Vashon was injured, so they had to forfeit the title. And on television, the tag team title was awarded to first contender, number one contender of the title, and then that was Jesse Venture and Adrian Adonis. But it, it really elevated them, you know. Sometimes, like in today's wrestling world, championship should mean, but just, sometimes it doesn't mean as much as it should. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. Different yeah. time. And different time, yeah. And uh, then when Mad Dog came back, Vern Gagne and Mad Dog, both aged veteran, right? And old rival, you know, that the Vern Gagne's heyday, big baby face, the biggest rival was the heel, then heel, Mad Dog Vashon. But when they turned 50, they were both baby face and Mad Dog helped Vern Gagne. It was an AWS story type deal. And uh, cha champion Jesse Venture and Adrian Danis, tag team champions, and challengers were Vern Gagne and, and Mad Dog Vashon. That drew a lot of house again. So I learned something, you know, sometimes you wonder, how could one same card you know you can do for entire year and people still watch it <laughs> you know what i'm saying mm 
Hmm. On paper, you don't understand that, you know, because once you watch one lineup, you know, Vern Gagne, Mad Dog Machine against Jesse Ventura, Adrian Adonis, once you watch, you you would feel that you watched it all, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, oh, I learned so much that first match, DQ finish, you know, no clean, you know, ending. Therefore, you have to have a rematch, you know, and rematch. You probably have heel guy cheat and wins, you know. Then the next following week on TV, that uh, babyface gets so mad that the promoter have to, you know, like Warrior Cobble, have to put together one more match, and uh, then then goes you know, another title match, and then then something happens, and another DQ finish or double counter, and it goes on and on, and then you go to like a. I don't know, either Lumberjack match or the false count anywhere or maybe all the way to cage match or something. And it just same lineup. And they did that around Horn because people in Minnesota don't travel to Denver, Colorado to watch, you know, watch another match, right? Yeah, that's not possible. That's not realistic. <laughs> not, not, in, not in 1980, yeah. yeah and especially just, with no internet or no uh, DVD or anything. No, no VCR, no VCR even. Or not yeah. even, a, you know, not even a live TV show. It's, it's the it's a information travels television. slowly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, not even cable yet. You know, cable, TV, see, a lot of, uh, not a lot, yeah, maybe a lot of people then. The, what Vince McMahon did changed wrestling. Of course, give all the credit that what credit is due. Vince McMahon did it, but with cable TV, did it before Vince McMahon's national expansion? No, we have yeah. Now forget that. Somebody must have done it. You know, if if it wasn't Vince McMahon, but the cable television was something initially te technology wise that that told people that there's another kind of wrestling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. More options, more the ability to, to check out what you want to check out. Yeah. Yeah. That I, I watched double, you know, WTBS Atlanta, you know, championship wrestling from Georgia, you know, like a Saturday afternoon thing, you know, in Minnesota when somebody's parents had, 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 had cable TV. Right. Wow, different kind of wrestling. I knew it because I was a wrestling fan and I read all the magazines, but the local kids didn't know other wrestling existed. Right. Yeah. And they, yeah, so the cable did it. And the following year, if you remember, um, UHF channels, mm -hmm. different set of channels. I mean, your regular television channel, and there's another round channel right next to it. And it's a give you a blurry, but like I got three or four different, another channel, right? In Minnesota, um, UHF Channel 23 uh, had world-class championship wrestling from Dallas, Texas, Bonex. Oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> then you, you you start you know noticing Bonex against Freebirds. You know, you can actually watch it on TV even when you lived in Minnesota. So it's like a cable TV and UHF channels and uh, whatnot. Oh, if you live in you know Los Angeles. You'll find funny wrestling program in 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 Spanish channel too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's like it's like uh, yeah, w, uh, Vince McMahon's national expansions and and uh, still you know made the 
wrestling company so big and uh, destroyed all the local territory. That's true too. But there was always technology that uh, did it too. That's what I'm trying to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way people watch it, the way people consume it. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But the Burn Ganya didn't really catch up on that. You know what I'm saying? He oh, he felt a little bit behind by the late 80s. Yeah, and then also it was like uh, much like Giant Baba's Old Japan that uh, your company aged with you, huh? Mm-hmm. And, and the fans too. Yeah, that fans too. And it, it, I kind of felt that the Vernon Ganya just didn't let go. And okay, what about Greg Ganya? Yeah, Greg Ganya, tag team champions, but I don't think people believed, you know, him as top babyface as much as Vern wanted people to believe in. And Nick Bakwenko, on the other hand, made great heel champion, you know, that the uh, made every single babyface challenger look like uh, top contender and he almost beat you but at the end of the day end of the night back when go get the belt and run away you know what i'm saying mm. and had like a five-year reign <clears throat> yeah everyone so wanted something. to see him lose that was the idea yeah and then then uh like if there was a 25 minutes you know title match Probably a good twenty minutes of it. Nick Bakwenko selling it, hmm. <laughs> you know. Hmm. Yeah, and uh, and at the last last two minutes or three minutes of it, he do something and he gets away, and and uh, the babyface cannot win the title. Yeah, it's very interesting. I learned so much from that, and also learned that champion don't have to be big babyface. It's a happy champion if you're babyface, right? I mean, mm-hmm. send people home so happy, huh? But uh, you can send wrestling fan home frustrated. They'll come back. <laughs> right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Frustrated is okay. Annoyed is, that's the bad part. That's the bad Yeah, part. yeah. And 20, 80, back to 82 and 83, Hulk Hogan was becoming the Hulk Hogan we know. Mm-hmm. You know he was not still, not wearing... Uh, yellow and yellow. He, sometimes he did, but uh, you see, WWE, WWF, Hulk Hogan was yellow trunks and yellow boots. That's it, huh? Maybe first year he had a light blue trunks and light blue shoes, white trunks and white shoes, and sometimes even red trunks and red boots. But uh, they all became one, just yellow trunks and yellow tights. You know, like in his main run. In AWA days, he tried a lot of things, white trunks and white boots, different, you know, like a still, this hawking up, you know, you know, was still in the infancy that the, he, was, he, he was trying to do a lot of things. And I think he brought a lot of Inoki into, a, you know, babyfaceness. Half a year he was in, New, you know, with New Japan and being a tag team partner, of, you know, Primetime Antonio Inoki, mm. and he was sitting right next to Inoki and learned what the baby face should be, you know, like a national hero type baby face. And uh, coming, you know, comeback three punch, Inoki's comeback is a big punch, you know. And uh, your Hulk Hogan's leg drop, actually, it's Antonio Inoki's Enzigiri. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Oh, Same function. Very, yeah, very much so. And the, the this. Super baby face work thing work universally, you know, 
and sometimes baby face get real mad that's when you can use closed fist it's illegal punch in ring in, mm -hmm. in wrestling but the people want the revenge the the, the, the heel bad guys did such a bad things and, uh, and people get frustrated when hulk up you know when you know Hulk Hogan Hulk's up and he's that the people ready to see his one you know like a one, one two three punch in the big boots and uh, leg drop and the AWA his leg drops you know what you know quite wasn't finished yet yeah but he polished really polished you know while he was in in AWA and uh, Hulk Hogan being challenger and Nick Bakwinko being champion this program lasted like a whole year. Again, you know, DQ finish to uh, referee turning back on and not watching the foreign object finish and uh, <clears throat> all these things. Every single, you know, finish in, in the book was done that the same Hulk Hogan against Nick Bakwenko match, same matchup, right? It lasted the whole year or maybe almost like a two-year period. And <clears throat> I believe Hulk Hogan wanted to get the title for real. Then he would live in live in Minnesota. He liked it there, but that was the very first AWA mistake that the Vern Gagne didn't crown, didn't give Hulk Hogan that belt. It probably didn't trust trust him, or Hulk Hogan wasn't the champ world heavyweight champion type in Vern Gagne's book. Mm -hmm. Very much uh, uh, different. Uh, what's the word? Different perspective based on the time. I mean. What Vern Gagne was popular for, he was popular for that uh, sportsman type wrestler that an was... athletic background and coming from Midwest in Minnesota and wrestling is a winter sport, indoor sports. A lot of kids in high school and college, wrestling is a big thing too, right? And uh, but like these, you said, these... those audiences they stick with that they stick with that generation and they kind of live and die with whatever or how yeah so aging awa had the fate <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. and, and that's kind of why i come back to that maybe he just doesn't understand hulk hogan because hulk hogan was a, a different stage in pro wrestling it was a different kind of he's a prototype and of that he kind of wrestling. actually hulk hogan was the one that made minneapolis to see that the once a month the biggest show in minnesota was Minneapolis Auditorium that only held what the five to six thousand, but he they had to move it to St. Paul Civic Center, uh, eighteen thousand people every month, you know. And Hulk Hogan was was the reason for it. Yeah, people really loved him, and that was around the time that the Rocky Three movie came out too. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, popular name, commercial name. It was just he was. Uh, it was a lot of good timing for Hulk Hogan too. He was uh, <clears throat> the right guy to connect with younger culture. Yeah, and when Hulk Hogan wasn't working in the program against Nick Bakunko, it was like a single match between Hulk Hogan against Jesse Ventura, Hulk Hogan against Adrian Adonis, Hulk Hogan against Jerry Blackwell. The perfect heels. Did Does that make the, sense? Did Bobby Heenan ever get involved in Hogan's matches? Sure. At, in sure. So they they started their their uh, their dynamic oh real baby face yeah and then uh, throw him the turn back on and take you know bobby Hina taking a biggest bump and all these things you know and then they caught, caught himself up in the rope mm, and uh, flipping hulk over hogan the slap. yeah and then the hulk hogan slapping and all these things yeah of course crowd, crowd goes oh crazy. absolutely bonkers they just they it's 
creating that scenario and, and of wanting that, that guy the time to get up. The Hulk Hogan became so polished as strong baby face, you know? Yeah. Then uh, Vern Gagne didn't quite get it then. Yeah. And also there was all tactics that the uh, end of 1983, December to be exact, Hulk Hogan told Vern Gagne that he's not coming for that St. Paul Civic Center show because he was in Japan. He really told him that ahead of time. But Vern Gagne instead kept advertising Hulk Hogan's name on St. Paul Civic Center, big December show, knowing that Hulk Hogan wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Yeah. Then uh, replacement was somebody like Baron Von Raschke, kind of let down, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I believe that uh, in, in wrestling politics back then, that, that the Vern Gagne pretty much felt that he could get away with it by putting heat on Hulk Hogan. He no-showed. Mm. Spun the but story. That, yeah, but the, he knew that Hulk Hogan wasn't going to be there, right? And uh, But the, they kept advertising on TV in Hulk Hogan's main event. And uh, they announced it at, right at the building at the St. Paul Civic Center that Hulk Hogan didn't make it to the city, you know, that the that, that, the airplane problem or something, you know, they announced something. Then uh, replacement would be your car master, Van Van Raschke, the aged baby face, you know, ex-heel, but kind of let down, right? Mm -hmm. But they did the same tactics quite a few times. Or, or, or even the, during the Hulk Hogan, Nick Bakuin, you know, program, at the building, Hulk Hogan clearly pinned Nick Bockwinkle in the middle of the ring, one, two, three, and got the belt and put the belt around the waist and left the ring. People thinking that you just witnessed the title change, right? Then Especially. following, yeah, and then the following week on TV that uh, the foreign object was used and the decision reversed and then the championship goes back to Bockwinkle again. And there you have it, the Bockwinkle still world heavyweight champion. And uh, it, they did that once, that probably worked. But if you do that two or three times, you know, that that's like, you don't trust this company. You know what I'm saying? In the back of your head, you know? Yeah, you yeah. have to rely on new fans instead of building your own audience. Uh, or, or like, uh, there's a trust factor, you know, that the, your local wrestling company will give people what they want. Hmm. Yeah, because this is like your ongoing, you know, everlasting theater called professional wrestling. You watch for 10, 15, 20, 30 years that uh, people are really faithful and loyal to your company, you know, local company that, uh, you know, they don't want you to betray that, you know. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. But anyhow, that uh, December, this, December 1983 was like... Uh, last straw that killed the camel's back. And uh, sure enough, January of 1984, Hulk Hogan beats Iron Sheik at Madison Square Garden and becomes WWF World Heavyweight Champion for real. And all the cable TV covered it over and over and over and over. The event of Hulkamania. Yeah, and, and for AWA uh, point of view, that uh, five months later in May, I believe, of 1984, WWF runs 
their first Minneapolis show. You know what I'm saying? On top, Hulk Hogan against Dr. D. David Schultz. That was the very last program AWA had. Dr. D. David Schultz against Hulk Hogan was on AWA main event that never had the conclusion. Then five months later, WWE comes back with the same lineup, Hulk Hogan against David Schultz. Slap in your face, huh? Pretty, yeah, uh, yeah crafty. Yeah, and on that same, you know, WWF card, you have people like um, jumping Jim Brunzel as 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 Killer B Jim Brunzel, and even people like Mad Dog Vashon. They, you know, WWF signed him, and uh, me and Jim Oakland, Bobby the Brain Heenan, Ken Patera, yeah, good Adrian Adonis, of chunk course. of the uh, roster. Rick Martel eventually. Rick, yeah, that Rick Mateo eventually, but not this time because after Hogan left, and there's a Jumbo Tsuda thing. Nick Bakwenko comes to Japan and drop title to Jumbo Tsuda, and Jumbo Tsuda comes back to Minnesota and Midwest area, defends his title, and he has hold the title for a while. Then St. Paul Civic Center, Jumbo Tsuda dropped the title to Rick Mateo, and then Rick Mateo becomes a guy, babyface mm-hmm. champion. That was. Vern Gagne's choosing, you know, pretty much, you know, his choosing of what the world heavyweight champion should look like. And by then, wrestling war had begun, right? Mm. It, yeah, WWF will come, you know, come to Minnesota pretty much once a month, you know, with all-star lineup, Bob on everybody. And sometimes Andre the Giant in it, Big John Studd in it, another former AWA star, and uh, Tito Santana, and just, and... People like Roddy Piper used to watch on TV. It just, but still, in 1984, 1985 version of fans, they supported both groups in Minnesota. You go to AWA shows, and when WWF comes, they go to WWF shows at the the Bloomington Met Center and two different buildings that uh, I think hardcore fans, there was no such thing as hardcore fan, but, uh, you know, you're a wrestling fan type. You still want to watch AWA. We support that. But the, when WWF comes to town, that's only once a month or every other month. You go watch that because Hulk Hogan's in it. And Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan and me and Jim Oakland did the tailgating party at the big parking lot at the Met Center and mingling with fans. You know, like a, uh, you know, it's like a love you, Minnesota. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, the, the people go to, you know, Met Center three o'clock in the afternoon just so you can meet Hulk Hogan and, Hulk Hogan and me and Jim Oakland. And how Kogan played guitar and uh, bass, actually. That the, he he played band in the parking lot. I mean, that close. You know what I'm saying? In person. Yeah. The wrestling war becomes se- severe and severe. And more people leaving, you know. that. The, but Vern Gagne didn't give up another five years, though. You know, that uh, Scott Ho- young Scott Hall, you know, from Kansas City, you know, the Eagle, Coyote, the American Eagle, the, the, the Danny Spivey goes to WWE, that the young 27-year-old Scott Hall becomes single wrestler, and Vern Gagne and Wally Cabo thought that the, we can't look at that the blonde guy left, we got the brunette, you know, and, and, and they thought they could make Hulk Hogan out of young Scott Hall. But it wasn't Scott Hall's call, you know, he was rookie too then, but uh, that was a very first main event experience that the Scott Hall had. Instead, he, he didn't really have the single match program. Instead, 
that the day put together up and coming young baby face Kurt Hennig and Scott Hall together as AW Tag Team Champions. Pretty good, huh? Mm-hmm. Good for us. Yeah, but the Scott Hall wasn't the Scott Hall we know of, right? No, he wasn't quite what uh, he became. He was, he was big. I mean, it was, takes another 10 years. He was years. a little yeah. bigger than he was. Yeah, another six, seven years, right? Mm-hmm. right. He struggled, you know, as, as talented as he was. He, there was years that he str- struggled. And Kurt Henning wasn't quite Mr. Perfect yet. He wasn't Mr. Perfect, but he was definitely, he was very talented. You could tell there was something. Oh, you, oh, really, really talented. But it was just something was lacking, which was Mr. Perfect, you know. Mm-hmm. Then after he became Mr. Perfect, he really walked around and walked, you know, and then talk, start talking like he was Mr. Perfect. Dude, he really took this gimmick so seriously. But that's another, we could talk about that a little bit later on. Then that the, all these wrestlers come and go, right? And then the, after WWE invasion in Minnesota, that Vern Gagne too had to open up a little bit. So the, the Vern Gagne brought in people like Abdul the Butcher and, and King Kong Brody for the first time. In AWA, another useless trivia, you are not going to call any wrestler bruiser. You know, <laughs> the bruiser is only the Dick the Bruiser affiliates, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and therefore, Bro- when Brody came to AWA territory, he was King Kong Brody instead. Mm. Yeah, well, that's useless trivia. But uh, King Kong Brody and Abdul the Butcher came in. AWF is not not AWA style at all. But what they did is turn fat, big, great worker Jay Blackwell babyface, and you know went against you know up against Abdul the Butcher and and, and uh, King Kong Brody. It's worked for a while, you know, and but the wrestlers are leaving so much that, that, that they had to hire, you know, new announcer that Ken Resnick who acted just like Minji in Auckland, right? And uh, yeah, this uh, AWA was damaged so much by this WWF, uh, the, the Vince McMahon national expansion and uh, rock and wrestling thing. They even copied rock and wrestling thing, brought in you know bands, and it's still you know try to run Metrodome, that the stadium type of show was uh, Superfly Jimmy Snooker in it, which who was a former WWE superstar. Like they brought in a lot of different people and made you know brought people like you know originally from Minnesota, but was in Portland, Oregon, but the Playboy Buddy Rose and Doug Summers came and kind of came back and they made tag team champions. And then rookie Midnight Rockers, Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty. They were like a 20, 21 then. Mm. Yeah. Shorter hair. They grew while they were there. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So talented as a rookie, but traditionally, Vern Gagne's AWA never really treated rookie that way, though, you know, but they were so desperate that, you know, that they had to create some television star, you know, so the Midnight Rockers, at the time, 20-year-old young Shawn Michaels, Murray Gennady was working in Kansas or somewhere, and they brought up to Minnesota and then put him on TV as, as a young, heartthrob tag team, and uh, yeah, and whatnot. And also, see, Vernon had to adapt to something to time, right? Then they uh, they cut the deal with um, ESPN, you know, because other big organization, WWE or NW Crockett or Von Erichs, 
world class. They they all have had the you know deal with bigger television. Therefore, AWA's Vern Gagne made a deal with ESPN and start taping a television show in Las Vegas. Yeah. And uh, that was around the time Medusa debuted, you know, like 87, 86, 87. She debuted, came in, and that was a time. See, Vern Gagne's AWA never really used women's wrestlers until then. Maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, maybe like every three years or so. But they brought in women's program for the first, pretty much first time, first time as a regular. And they created another tag team like uh, Bad Company that uh, Pat Tanaka and Paul Diamond, if you remember, mm-hmm. with the then manager, Diamond Dallas Page, that nobody knew about yet. And uh, yeah, they, they brought in so many new people and they, uh, they really struggled and uh, tried to last another year or two, three. And then y- your world heavyweight champion was Larry Zabisco, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the time, Larry Zabisco was married to Vern Gagne's oldest daughter. Yeah. And uh, they uh, struggled, but they, they kept fighting all the way till like 89. Yeah, another four years of it. Yeah, you know who's uh I wanted to talk to you about who who actually stayed stayed in America for a long time from like I think it was eighty three eighty four was Masa Saito Mister Saito. Yeah, he came from WWE mm-hmm. in eighty one eighty two period that he was WWF tag team champion with Mister Fuji had a program against Strombo Brothers if you remember. Then after he finished up with, with WWF. He actually moved to Minnesota as a single competitor. Yes. Uh, Masa Saito came and, and actually lived in Minnesota. 83, I believe. Yeah, that's when we met and became really good friends. Hmm. Yeah, no relation is... to you. That's right. <clears throat> well, that's your Saito is like your Smith Johnson sure, yeah. or, or Anderson in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it helped because people assume, you know, we related, you know. Oh, got me to backstage a lot quicker then, you know? <laughs> yeah. So then uh, we, we get another person, you know, another tag team that we cannot forget was that the Road Warriors era. Oh, of course. Yeah, after Hulk Hogan left and Bruiser Brody only worked AWA, what, maybe altogether six months and, and never came back because falling out with Vangania real quick. But... Uh, after one year in Atlanta, they came back to their hometown. You know, Road Warriors came back to hometown uh, in Minnesota, I think, you know, calling themselves Road Warriors from Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, of course, initially heel, right? Big heel. And then the uh, initial program was uh, long, li- long Riders, or the Fabulous Ones, probably. That uh, Fabulous Ones was Steve Kahn and Stan Lane. Mm-hmm. Big baby face at the time. But... Uh, Big, yeah, baby face was fabulous ones. Steve Kern and Stan Lane and Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal were uh, there for heel. But people cheered Road Warriors so much more, you know. And that's another thing Vern Gagne didn't quite understand why people liked him so much, right? <laughs> yeah, people, I mean, it, things changed because people wanted different things. They didn't want to see, um, at, by this time, could. You could answer it for me, maybe, but it it came off compared with 
WWF, that AWA was kind of old fashioned or a little Real old fashioned at this point. It was kind of like uh, your dad's wrestling. <laughs> yeah. And what was crucial, what you see on TV, WWE programming, they come from like a big, huge arena. Or even the, even the rest, name wrestler against enhancement talent, like a squash match. But they they were on TV. I mean, coming from like a Poughkeepsie, New York, that you still have over 10,000, 15,000 people. Like they're showing big arena show, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, the, not my word, wording, but the WWF wording that the AWA's match were taking place at somebody's garage. Huh. I mean, yeah, studio. It, it, it studio. looked. Uh, it looked a little bit. Uh, primitive compared with WWF at that time. Yeah, yeah, in seventies into early eighties, yeah, this studio match was what what you would do anywhere, you know, any territories, you know, in studio match like Saturday, Sunday, you know, your TV show wrestling, and when you go into arena, they'll show you real matches, different mentality, right? But the WWF, the TV take taping was from big arena so for general tv viewers of course wwe looks more a lot more majorly yeah. but the road warrior was a big hit and uh, even <clears throat> aged promoter booker vergania had to turn road warriors babyface real quick but they didn't change <clears throat> what they did in ring they worked like road warriors. They needed opponent. So they brought in Irvin brothers, you know, long riders, Bill Irvin and Scott Irvin, the heavyweight. So they had pretty good, pretty good program. Sometimes Jerry Blackwell again and, and the Boom Boom Bundy, the King Kong Bundy from Dallas, he worked briefly with AWA, you know, to be opponent of Road Warriors. Yeah. And the Road Warriors run. Uh, but the thing, what, what happened was that Vern Gagne and AWA couldn't really pay them what they wanted, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, according to Vern Gagne's then 1984 mentality that uh, these guys are way overpaid, right? And what happened? Yeah, the Road Warriors goes to Giant Baba's Old Japan, yeah. And they, the weekly pay was like 20000 after tax a week. Then real big money. Back then, uh, I can't imagine what it would be now. Yeah, a twenty grand money. a week in in nineteen eighty four. Yeah, after tax. So this was also the time that uh, AWA had to kind of like a working deal with All Japan and Baba. Uh, they had relationship that the giant Baba and Vern Gagne worked the deal, and uh, jump nineteen seventy five Jumbo Tsuda's first. Main event single match was against against Vern Gagne. Yeah, so uh, Vern switched side from IWE to All Japan, more lucrative, I think. And mm-hmm. and also, yeah, Baba, you know, later, you know, later on, you know, cut the deal with AWA and then made Jumbo Tsuda a champion, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was AWA champion for a, a good amount of time. Four, yeah, yeah, four four five months period. Yes, yeah. And what Jumbo needed was to you know to become the guy with all japan pro wrestling that they had to become major league world heavyweight champion and actually tour america and the first trip 
not the first, but the first trip as an AWA champion, he brought every single news page and wrestling magazine, you know, reporters and photographers and TV crew with him. He taped everything what Jumbo Tsuda did in America as a champion, and they, they documented everything. They made, yeah, the guy. And that was around the time that the Jumbo Tsuda, you know, dropped that the blue red trunks with star on it and the red wrestling boots and all these things is gone that the jumbo Tsuda dress up with this black trunks and black boots and work serious style and uh, yeah they needed that transition yeah and awa belt was it <clears throat> it was like a very like a, a 60 70 happy moment you know if you if you're a wrestling magazine reader, there were three major league world heavyweight champion in America, NWA champion, Harley Race, most of the time, AWA world champion, Nick Bakwenko, most of the decade, and Bob Backlund, WWF champion. So there were three major leagues in America. That's how we were, you know, looking at America from Japan. Mm-hmm. And Jumbo actually got the actual Major League World Heavyweight title that nobody else had. I mean, no Japanese, other Japanese had the AWA title. I mean, not let on Masasaito beat Larry Zbysko at the Tokyo Dome in 1990. That was the very end of AWA. But that's another story for another time. But uh, yeah, uh, Jumbo was very special to be to beat Bakuenko in Japan. And uh, he actually toured America as a champion and came back and defended title in Japan again. Then had another trip until he dropped the title to Rick Martel in St. Paul. Yeah, the same year, 84. But th- that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And the AWA was s- struggling, but still trying to fight WWF. Yeah. Yeah, Vern didn't give up for a long time. Yeah, they fought another five years. So what did the uh, late 80s AWA <clears throat> look like? What? what by uh this was so late 80s means that most of the the big talent from the early 80s had moved gone in the exodus to wwf or somewhere else so they were pretty in order to have your territory and but they like i said that the scott hall and kurt hennig tag team champions and they created midnight rockers you know young Shawn michaels and Shawn michaels merge um Playboy Buddy Rose and Doug Summers, uh, Doug Summers, who was Sherry Martell as a you know like a heat magnet female manager. Uh, Nasty Boys. Nasty Boys wouldn't start until Dying Day of AWA. Oh, okay, like, so a little later. Yeah, yeah, oh, much later. And he was ne- the Nasty Boys were never part of any anything in AWA. And, and Brad Reagan's didn't think they were going to make it. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Brad was running wrestling school, right? And there's other, a lot of promising students. And uh, they didn't think, you know, like Wayne Bloom and Mike Enos, you know, Minnesota, you know, new version of Minnesota Wrecking Crew. And uh, the Brad didn't think Nasty Boys were going to make it because they were in shape, you know? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, they kept their mouth shut and they finished the program, finished the training, and they actually debuted. But they were sent down to Tennessee first. I... But that was around the time that, uh, that uh, see, first they, yeah, Kurt was ready, but the people weren't ready. But uh, uh, AWA made Kurt Henning AWA World Heavyweight Champion, remember? 
Right. But, uh, it was uh, so. This was after. Was 80, this after 80, his run with his dad as a tag team? Oh yeah, much later. Oh, so even he was, after, even after tag team with Scott Hall. Yeah, Scott he Hall was left, more established, a babyface star for AW. Yeah, and there was a program, uh, Nick Bockwinkel babyface against heel, Kurt Hennig, to establish him as a as a single competitor. Uh, at Las Vegas, you know, it's it's on YouTube somewhere, or I think it's on WWE Network too now. That 60-minute Broadway single match between Nick Bockwinkel and Kurt Hennig. Oh, really? established yeah, kind of a famous yeah. Uh, famous match. Yeah, it really established Kurt Hennig as believable single match single competitor. And to make long story short, that they made Kurt Hennig. World Heavyweight Champion AWA, but he was already talking with WWF at the time. You know that he was already a jump. <clears throat> yeah, in the plan of you know making him Mr. Perfect and all these things, and straight to title match program against Hulk Hogan on top. You know, and uh, he was ready to go to WWE, but uh, his father Larry told him to wait because. Uh, it's really bad for family and it's bad for people in Minnesota. And uh, yeah, Kurt really waited, you know, uh, like a s- delayed six to 10 months going WWE because he held the title, you know, in AWA, wanted or not. And uh, he had to carry the company. And uh, I believe it was 1988. He went down to Tennessee and the title, he dropped the title to Jerry Lawler. Okay. Then Jerry Lala becomes AW World Heavyweight title. It's like this is like a end of all the territory days, you know that the Von Erich's world class dying, and at the end Tennessee and and Dallas marched. If you remember, yeah, do you remember the time that the Tennessee USWA and former formerly known as World Class Championship Wrestling in Dallas? These two companies merged, Tennessee and Dallas merged into one territory. Oh my gosh! Mm-hmm. And Jeff Jarrett uh, uh, on top, and I, I had to learn something. It's like, is it even possible to have the two different states and then becoming one company, right? But uh, there, there was a deal in the Southwest Airline or something that uh, you can actually fly between t- Memphis, Tennessee to Dallas, Texas for thirty-five dollars. Did you know that? <laughs> so it, it's funny that you you saw it like that, like um, the two territories coming together. Because when I I was first familiar with that group as oh, either what together? whatever it was when it was global wrestling on ESPN, right, right. Or after um, Von Eric really gave up on it, right? Or like USWA. I mean, yeah, that's kind of another combination of that's what I knew first so i was oh, okay it was really crazy because there was kerry von eric as the you know, world class wcwa world champion kerry von eric and awa world heavyweight champion jerry lotter working in dallas without Vern. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a crazy time period don't you think it, it was definitely things were changing because of because of wwf because of uh, and business Georgia. in the South was was like a, that was a big deal in both Dallas and Memphis because what they were doing was double world title match, 
AWA World Champion against WCW, uh, the World Class World Champion, Kerry Von Erich, that the two world titles will unify tonight. They didn't. But you know what I'm saying? Mm. That was something they had to do. And in the meantime, Jerry Lawler never returned AWA title to Vern. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Uh, First, isn't there a story that's similar to that with uh, Stan Hansen? He also did right. return the belt. Yeah, they, uh, after Rick Martel, the, the Rick Martel didn't ha really have the long run as champion and at the Meadowlands of all places. You know, just pro wrestling USA days at the different companies, AWA, NWA, Crockett, the Tennessee, the, even Puerto Rico, the Bill Watts, the, the Louisiana, the, the Mid-South company. They all got together and created one television, like syndicated television, pro wrestling USA to fight WWE, right? But they couldn't even agree what to eat at the at the restaurant. <laughs> it's just this... To make long story short, this Pro Wrestling USA TV only lasted, what, the altogether 13 episodes or something? Yeah. And, uh, but it only created another chaos, right? Yeah. But they awarded a belt back to aged Bachwinkle, you know, as a solution, you know, because that the Stan wouldn't, Stan Hansen wouldn't drop the title. Uh, in AWA because all the news and the videotape and all these things will go to Japan. I ain't doing it. And start, went back to the hotel and started drinking, you know, in, in the cocktail room. And, uh, yeah, that the Vern Gagne had to award, you know, age to Bakwenko in Denver, Colorado, and made him champion again. But, uh, yeah, that was chaotic that he, Stan Hansen, a couple of days after that, he brought the physical AWA championship belt into all Japan. I mean, he he held a belt. He never returned it. And that, uh, to finish the very famous tale, that he drove the AWA belt over with his truck, then mailed back. <laughs> That's a famous story. That's he tells all the story. time. Yeah, yeah. He put the belt on the ground. He ran over with his truck, then returned the belt. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, like, it's symbolic almost what was happening with AWA at the time. It really struggled, but they really never gave up on it until 1990. And 1990, and the, the, they, they sent last champion Larry Zabisco to New Japan's Tokyo Dome show. At the Tokyo Dome, Masa Saito beat 47-year-old at the time, no? 47-year-old Masa Saito beat Larry Zabisco at the Tokyo Dome, became world, AWA world champion which was Masa's very last belt, major belt, single belt he had. Well, happy moment. And a couple months later, um, he came back to St. Paul to drop the title back to Larry Zabesco at St. Paul Civic Center. And that was the last big card AW ever held. Hmm. So what exactly uh, happened that, uh, what, what was it that officially ended AWA in 1990? Oh, wow. That was the last, very last live card the St. Paul Civic Center they had. But I think they already lost the local TV and the ESPN, uh, the syndicated show was done over and they couldn't afford to run house shows or the spot shows, they call it, you know, that uh, altogether they closed down the shop, 1990. So I think this it really, really teach us something that, uh, you know, mom and pop, kind of wrestling company, the lifespan is about 30 years. Hmm. 
I mean, it's a generation. It's a generation's wrestling, and it's uh, it definitely. Yeah, AEW was major company. Well, it was major company, and 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 let's not take anything away from that. But they could not keep up with time. Cable right. TV, the pay per view, the national expansion that, the, or the wrestler with with downside guarantee kind of system, and the information being more honest to the you know general audience. All everything, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, times changed, and AWA seemed to not drastically change much about. But AW about wasn't it. wasn't the only company. That's right. That the uh, you know Tennessee went down, then came back up with you know Jerry Jarrett's time. That the uh, Von Erich's uh, you know Fritz Von Erich's father pretty much gave up on everything and sold the company. And uh, different promoters and different group of people try to run run Dallas Sportatorium, you know, like a global or. You know, GWA or GWF or a different group of different promoters try to run Dallas, but ne never succeeded. And the Tennessee survived, but never was major company or major league operation. NWA Florida, NWA Crockett, they fought well, but the, you know, ultimately it was sold to Ted Turner and became WCW. Sheik's Detroit, the the, the Dick the Bruisers Detroit, the Kansas City, the Pat O'Connor, Bob Geigel companies, all these companies were gone altogether, altogether, yeah, around the same time. Isn't that interesting? Uh, times changed, and it really AWA is a, a like you said, we could learn a lot from from what happened, what they didn't do, what they did do, and and how it. Just didn't work. So it wasn't entirely AWA or Vern Gagne's fault. It was time that has changed and gone by. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all through 1990s, it was WWF, WWE against WCW in Atlanta. Big Ted Turner TV company. Big capital. Yeah. So like a two major league era in 1990. Then eventually Monday Night War until it was ended in 2001. So all through 90s, it was like a, two major companies. But all through 80s, there were such things as territories. Yeah. I learned a lot from it. But then again, that was around the end of 80s into 90s part that the major superstar American wrestler pretty much altogether stopped coming to Japan, though. Yeah, like uh, either you were you were signed under WWE or WCW, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, New Japan, All Japan, both had their sets of American wrestler roster, you know, like Vader, Bam Bam Bigelow, Scott Norton, Tony Holm, the, you know what I'm saying? It, 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 with New Japan and and with All Japan, you had Stan Hansen, Terry Gordy, Steve Williams. The, the Spivey, Johnny S, Doug Furness, Phil LaFond, all these, their sets of American roster in Japan. They were big too. And uh, uh, yeah, of course, that Age Abdullah Butcher always worked Japan. Taiga Jitsin always worked Japan. Yeah. And Bruiser Brody went back and forth with Old Japan and New Japan and ultimately came back to Old Japan. Very interesting time. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people uh, inside, like the 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 inner states of the United States and and parts of, of Canada, 
like Winnipeg and um, even at times Quebec. I mean, it, it has served a different, or not served, but. It yeah, the Montreal was another place special. too. Yeah. That, uh, see, it, it, local, local Montreal territory, you have people like Dino Bravo and Rujos and Rick Martel and what, you know, whatnot. It's like a healthy territory. They all together, they all went to WWE. <laughs> you know, top guys. Yeah. It just stopped feeling like a top place by the time it. Uh, by the time business. they were on the national TV with WWE and become yeah. like a, just a. If, one of those, one of the feeding heel for the Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It felt like it kind of rotted away. But then people were ready for national products, though. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, AWA still had that um, traditional. local, yeah, local or territorial, regional feeling to it, mm -hmm. you know. Pre television. And like, yeah, and, and, and people like Vader, uh, as Leon White, he made his debut with AWA, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but eventually he was discovered by Japan and became a big Van Vader, you know. And uh, yeah, people like Bam Bam Bigelow started with Monster Factory and then went down to Tennessee for a couple months, then went down to Dallas World Class for a couple months, was discovered by New Japan and the uh, rest of the rest is history. Then went to WWE, you know, and Bam Bam Bigelow had a, bo in a run in both places, New Japan and WWE. You know, when when uh, Lawrence Taylor LT was brought into uh, the guest appearance for WrestleMania, it had to be somebody like Bam Bam, Bam, Bam Bigelow to take the place, you know? You were at that one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, He was very happy, you know, he, to do so because he was chosen. That the, how, how can, you know, anybody make a wrestling match out of LT, you know? And it turned out to be pretty good. Yeah, it was a watchable wrestling match, and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow was really proud of it, you know. And also, he made one million one night, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and yeah. at a time where pro wrestling in in the states was not very popular, uh, compared. Yeah, with but later WrestleMania on. was pretty popular. Oh, sure, sure. Know? Yeah, yeah, but he was chosen because he was champion was Diesel. At WrestleMania that year, champion was Diesel. You know, Kevin Nash and challenger was Babyface. Click, nonetheless, but uh, Shawn Michaels, you know. But the, for general public, that the attention, center of attention was, you know, ex-NFL LT against Bam Bam Bigelow. That made Bam Bam Bigelow a household name in America, too. Mm -hmm. He had quite a few B-movie, you know, that the offer right after that. Mm -hmm. uh, he did a couple of those B-movies. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Bam Bam Bigelow, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, yeah, he almost a... Yeah, he almost wanted to become an actor too, you know, if the gig start popping up, you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think for the most part we covered the, the broad strokes of the of the history of AWA, so unless there's any uh... they ended up talking about the the entire collapse, you know. Yeah, uh the end of the, the territory and yeah. uh, you know various companies fate. Yeah. Because when the AWA went out yeah, it was like a domino effect. It felt like, yeah, yeah. And AWA was at the front because they, at one time they were one of the big ones. Yeah, and then they struggled, but they fought back for a long time until they couldn't anymore. Yeah. Uh, but but the aged you know performers and and a different mentality and a different business method 
Yeah. And it wasn't just one simple reason, you know, therefore end of an era. Huh. Right. It, it, it fizzled uh, and things moved on and people and talent moved on. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So in the 90s, you know, so the, what happened was reasons that the WWE and World Championship Wrestling as another major league company from Atlanta that uh, ultimately Hulk Hogan type of pro wrestling to Ric Flair type of pro wrestling, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then that shifted when Hulk Hogan, um, you know, signed with WCW and all the whole Monday Night War and NWO thing and WCW almost, you know, defeat w, you know, WWF until, you know, the merge of Stone Cold and The Rock, right? Mm-hmm. But th- that's another subject for another day. But we covered AW and I'm hoping that the, that the if we learn something, this is what happened, you know, f- from these early part of 80s and to uh to a uh, end of territory wrestling and not just territory as business but it really changed the face of you know wrestling business as a whole mm-hmm. yeah and a lot of important talent came through awa yeah 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 but those talents are but that's still 30 years ago now so uh yeah um unfortunately that uh, a lot of the wrestlers are not with us anymore like including people like mr perfect card henning Mm-hmm. Scott Hall, yeah, yeah, and then they were young guys, huh? Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so I guess uh, that that'll do for the uh, AWA uh, history of AWA uh, part two. Yeah, unless there's anything else you'd like to add, or, or unless there's anything we left out, I think we we had a lot of the we did a lot. Yeah, let's not forget to mention my friend Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, or Mike Hegstrand and Joe Larinidas. Yeah, they are gone too. I just, mm. yeah, thought about it. Mr. Saito. Oh, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. End Different of an era. Hair. Yeah, yeah. They're not here anymore. Yeah, it was, I mean, there's no way to go back to whatever awa and and companies like that were i mean it's hard to explain to younger people but there's no way that things are going to go back to that oh no no different times different 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 period not just that but different technology people don't even even watch wrestling on tv it's uh, live streaming you know you're watching wrestling on your on your laptop or you know whatever the device you have yeah it's not even on television. It's on the internet. Yeah. Pay or not. Yeah. But, so it's altogether a different, yeah, different deal. Yeah. And there's a, I think there's a lot, I feel like I, I learned and I feel like there's a lot to learn by going back and, and revisiting some of the, uh, the footage that you can find pretty easily these days. Yeah. Um, what hasn't changed, you know, what hasn't changed is what makes good wrestling match though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and somebody like uh, Nick Bockwinkle, his work you can you know it, it's uh, it's not innovative uh, or or too technical, but it, it's um, there's a like we were talking about earlier about the uh, a perfect tick toss has an effect uh, if uh, everything looks smooth. Yeah, wrestling move, move themselves, but uh, more like uh, emotion. And the rhythm. 
yeah and, and yeah connecting emotion in... or the yeah connecting with with the eyes you know with the and, audience uh, or, or or with uh, whoever he's like wrestling when you smile when you feel like smiling when you get angry when you feel like angry and you share that feeling and the comeback and uh yeah it's this basic psychology of wrestling will not change i don't think yeah somebody like nick bockwinkle you don't need to ever know anything going in to watching it to to understand what's going on to understand the story and what he's doing it's a very it's very yeah, clear, then, then it's, strong you, story yeah time. while you have wrestlers like kenny omega today you still have have wrestlers like brian danielson mm -hmm. yeah so yeah, that part I don't think will change. Yeah. All Very right. Good. So if uh, if anybody <laughs> has uh, questions or, or follow up on the yeah yeah, well, I'll, I'll answer if I could or whatever I can answer. You know, I want to share it with you. Uh, you can find me at Fumihiko Dayo, F U M I H I K O D A Y O, Fumihiko Dayo on Twitter or Fumi Saito on Facebook. And if you send me message first. A messenger, I'll answer either question or the friend me or or send me friend request. I'll accept that. That's right, and you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Justin M Nipper and I P P E R. That's it for the history of AWA parts one, parts two. I think we covered a lot. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Next week we'll come at you with something new. So until next time, Fumi. So long from Tokyo, everybody. <laughs>